it really hurts dopamine and it could cause Parkinson's. And we had known from the spinal tap studies before that there was no decline in dopamine in the dopaminergic neurotransmitters, metabolites. So, um, and also from the prior uh, primate study that we did with George, um, none of the, the animals all get autopsied at the end, but none of them died from the administration of the MDMA. So in this study that, that George did later, um, around 2000, 2001, um, he ended up, a bunch of these primates died from overdoses from the drug that was being given to them. And so that was a clue, to, should have been a clue to him that something was wrong. The fact that he had all these findings about dopamine, it should have been a clue that his previous findings didn't show that, but out of desperation, I think, that, that the research was moving forward. We'd done with Charlie Grobe a phase one dose response safety study. So as a last ditch effort to use science, NIDA um, you know, funded this primate study, and then George um, published it in the journal Science, one of the most important scientific journals. Um, Alan Leshner, who was the head of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, had, had successfully um, scared members of Congress about the dangers of MDMA, and had built up the NIDA budget to over a billion dollars a year. Um, he left, and he was now head of AAAS, American Association for the Advancement of Science, that published the journal Science. So we got him invested in George's research, and then he had, a, in a press release, he said, taking MDMA is like playing Russian roulette with your brain. It's kind of a, a scary story. And so the, the paper was sent to us for a comment before they published it. And the title was, Single Recreational Dose Caused Dopaminergic Neurotoxicity. Well, it wasn't a single dose. It was a repeated dose multiple different times. Mm -hmm. um, so they were misleading even in the title of it. Um, but then it came out that uh, they published this article and MDMA um, supposedly could cause Parkinson's. Um, and then what started happening was a little bit scary is a, a few doctors would say, oh, I have somebody that had Parkinson's. He's tried MDMA one time before, and they would publish case reports now of MDMA potentially causing Parkinson's. But we kept challenging. These were not human-relevant doses. They were not given orally. And so what we didn't know is that over a year, George tried to replicate his results um, in a more you know, lower doses, oral, and he couldn't do it. And what he kept doing then is trying to crowd the animals, increase the temperature, various things that we know that could increase neurotoxicity, and he, he could not replicate the results. Meanwhile, he's defending his results in, in journals, and we're challenging him all these different ways. He's defending it. And then finally, what he had to do was admit to a, a fundamental mistake. They couldn't replicate the results. They took one of the animals that had died. They autopsied, um, they got all these brain tissues, and they discovered that instead of MDMA, they had mistakenly administered methamphetamine to these oh, monkeys, my. to these primates. And MDMA is um, a lot weaker than methamphetamine. You have a smaller dose of methamphetamine to have an active effect than MDMA. So they were giving the wrong drug in very large amounts, and that's how they killed some of these primates. And so this was actually the the end of the, or not the end, but the high watermark of uh, MDMA neurotoxicity, once he had to withdraw that. And then shortly after that, we got permission for the first study for MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD. And can I just jump in? Um, none of this was like, none of this is harmless. So th there's a law that's passed around the same time, the RAVE Act. Um, 
and, and it was, and it relied on this research to be passed, and that, that you know the Rave Act is didn't create the quote unquote crack house statute, but it strengthened it, which right now is the very law that's being used to prevent safe injection sites. So n none of this misinformation and was harmless, yeah, and and good. I think it's important to sort of. But again, it started with the politics, right? right? Yeah, and the other way it's super harmful, in 2001, while we're still in the midst of this MDMA neurotoxicity, the Sentencing Commission set penalties for MDMA that still exist. We, we need to go change those. But right now, if you have a pile of MDMA in one hand and a pile of cocaine in the other hand and you get busted, you're going to go to jail longer for the MDMA than for the cocaine. And it's because of these fears that were generated that you take this drug, one dose, permanent brain damage. So it's, it's caused a lot of distortions of the criminal justice system. Oh, Rick, can I ask you? So I know a lot of people have asked me about how, does, how do these publications happen if the, their peer review committees are objective? And they, how, during that time, were they just all bought into the drug war and... Well, that's a very, very good question. I mean, the, the clue that they had, uh, a bunch of these primates had died when previous uh, studies in primates had not killed anyone, that, that should have been a clue. But I think that they were so um, desperate to do it, to, to sort of keep demonizing MDMA, to block it from becoming a medicine, because that was where the, the drug war has also been sustained by this idea that these drugs are inherently dangerous. What I said before about the relationship, you know, th that gets lost. And so what they wanted to do is block the research into therapeutic use because then they said that, quote, sends the wrong message. And then people question, why are these illegal? Why are these people going to jail for so long for these things? So I think the peer review um, system, um, people either didn't know the literature or this is coming from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. It's in line with the politics of the day. So. They let it through. Wow, amazing. All right, I, I want to move ahead. Um, I want to make sure we get to Sue and Julia. So Sue, um, we're talking about politics. Let's talk about marijuana. Yeah. Um, Good stuff. So wh why don't we talk a bit about uh, the marijuana research. Um, and so you've had a little bit of difficulty um, getting licenses to do the marijuana research. Um, I always hear politicians talk about there isn't enough science. There's actually plenty of science, right? But there's not the type of science they want, which is sort of the double-blind placebo clinical trial. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about how difficult it was for you to line up all the pieces and then how everything went off the rails and so yeah. on and so forth. Well, and the first study Rick and I did together, MAP sponsored a, the first ever um, RCT looking at veterans using inhaled cannabis to treat PTSD. and. It took us seven years to overcome all the regulatory hurdles, and it was um, surprising to me because that was the first study I'd ever, I was really lucky that MAPS was mentoring me on how to navigate that process because I was just a regular clinician that they had pulled in to, to you know, help them advance the trial, and I was just stunned by the myriad ways that the government had concocted to systematically impede this work over so many decades. I mean, props to the government. This was so clever how they figured out, and I think the most uh, shrewd way that they devised was creating this monopoly at University of Mississippi where there was only one federally legal supplier for all cannabis, and 
this was really depressing cannabis. It was super anemic. It was, you know, the potency was very low, not close to real world cannabis. So that's where I think the government was really smart in finding ways to dilute the cannabis. They had, you know, they would take the flower that actually looks pretty comparable to real world when it's harvested. It looks similar to what we grow in our lab now, but it's the over-processing that occurs afterwards. All the, you know, the, this overzealous attempt to meet GMP criteria that makes the cannabis not even close to real world. It's like a green powder. And so that's um, a one very um, smart way of sabotaging clinical trials because then you can never beat placebo sufficiently. The, the cannabis is so diluted. You can never beat it sufficiently to generate a positive trial. So that's why when Matt helped us sue the government in federal court, we were able to you know, bring out some of these issues. And so the hurdles to, to getting the studies done have now, you know, Rick's been working tirelessly to try to end the public health service review, which was a redundant review that was unnecessary that um, he managed to strip that away. So now getting the approvals done is a little bit easier than it was back when we first started. But it's still onerous, the, I, the effort to get your own um, Schedule 1 and then find real-world cannabis that, you know, so even though Matt's efforts in federal court helped us break this monopoly, and now our lab and several other labs around the country have a Schedule 1 to manufacture cannabis, none of them are actually um, generating cannabis yet for clinical trials because the FDA has decided that our cannabis doesn't meet their GMP criteria. So that goes back to what I was talking about earlier, that the way the government, it, you know, sorry, the FDA is uncomfortable with the idea of whole nature, you know, intact natural materials. Sure, they have this botanical delivery pathway that um, supposedly will enable whole botanicals to get through the drug development process. I would argue that pathway is not functional. It is not, you know, whole mushroom or whole plant is never going to be able to attain FDA approval under that current system, which is super sad because there's a lot of great um, plants and mushrooms that deserve to get through there. But um, so that's why, and, and if we have time at the end, I just wanted to bring up our work. We're, we're striving to to, to utilize the federal right to try law to enable whole plant and whole mushroom to be able to be accessed by the public. So we wouldn't have to go all the way through phase three. We would just finish a phase one trial and go um, straight to people, to people with life-threatening illness who need this. So um, we'll talk about that more. Well, later. let's say one, one thing. So we have a $12.9 million grant from the state of Michigan for a study in cannabis in veterans with PTSD. And the study has been on clinical hold for over a year. And one of the main issues is that um, what we want for cannabis is we want to give people two grams a day. We want to give them a water pipe, um, a vaporizer that takes not oil, not isolated yeah. cannabinoids in oil, but, but that would take the flour. And we give them four roll, pre-rolls, each um, half a gram, so they'd get two grams a day. And then we want them to use it whenever they want in whichever system that they want, and they'll track it every time they use it. And so that's called patient self-titration. Patients adjust their dose. Their stress levels may vary from day to day. The FDA is like, absolutely not. We're not going to permit you to do that. We want it all standardized dose. Everybody has to get the same amount in the same way at the same time of day, and that's how you do a clinical study. 
and that's not really the way cannabis is used, nor is it the way it should be used. But it also, with this patient self-titration, it gets to the point that Sue is saying is that the flowers will, will vary a little bit from one to another. But if you have rapid feedback about how high you're getting, or, or I shouldn't say, well, for me, how high you're getting, but for a patient, you know, how much you're reducing your symptoms, um, then you can adjust your dose. So you don't need the um, drug to be as precise as a white powder that's, you know, 99.9% .9 and very consistent. So that's the challenge that we have, and we're moving towards a type A meeting, a meeting with the FDA to argue this out. And if not, then we bring in the lawyers. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to skip ahead because I, I think this is a really important topic um, and talk about ketamine just briefly, which is not a Schedule One drug. And Julia, you're the, the ketamine expert on the, the floor. So, um, and I think it's important to illustrate ketamine to show, like, you know, we're talking about this alternative world where things can be researched. Um, and fortunately, there is something out there that we can look at. So um, why don't you just tell us a little bit about sort of history of ketamine, off-label administration, research? Thank you. So I, my medical degree, after I got my medical degree, I was in pediatrics, and the way I heard about ketamine was really in the ER. We used to love using this for patients. It was very safe. It's been around since uh, 1962. And then when I resigned from the Western medical world, I discovered that ketamine back in 2019 was now approved for, um, it was a breakthrough therapy. So you're able to now study it, and there was all of this interest, and it's continued to increase. And the interesting thing with ketamine is it's not a classic psychedelic, as we know. It is a dissociative anesthetic, but it can elicit these psychedelic-like experiences, which is really great because it allows us as clinicians to start to learn how to work with non-ordinary states of consciousness. And it's a very... Um, I'll talk about it in terms of how it applies to the research. Pamela Kriskow, who has an organization called Roots to Thrive, she called psych uh, ketamine psychedelic scaffolding. If we can get it right with ketamine, then we can really pave the way for other psychedelics as they become approved. And what I mean here is really working with the set and setting, which is the mindset coming in, the setting is your environment, and really what I think is the most valuable uh, contribution that the ketamine can make to this conversation is we, we can study it right now. The issue is that it's off patent. Nobody really wants to fund these studies. And a lot of the uh, use of ketamine is really based on research that was done with pain. So what we right now, like the point that we're at now is, okay, well, here's the regimen that we use for pain. Oh, wow, it's helping mental health. But we need to now look at ketamine for mental health specifically and start playing with, okay, maybe you could use less ketamine and more therapy or having less uh, number of doses but doing this in a group setting. And the reason why I say this is I've been watching this industry, kind of, like the ketamine side, I've been listening to different organizations, providers, and time and time again, everyone says the same thing. The more you work on yourself while you're using ketamine, while you're in ketamine treatment, the longer the results will last and the more, um, the more beneficial it's gonna be overall. And so my, my thinking is that when, um, actually I just lost my train of thought, so I'm gonna. <laughs> 
Well, why, don't, why don't we bring this to a conclusion, and I'll, I'll see the floor here just to all, all you three, because we've heard a lot about um, the challenges that remain today. So we're past Ricardi, we're past the nine of monopoly, um, and, and the research is certainly easier to do today. I think, you know, the fact that there are like 50 different psychedelic companies with all new molecules is, is a testament to that, and honestly, MAPS, which kind of moved this forward, as, but as well as the psilocybin research um, that was going on in Johns Hopkins and NYU. But, um, but there's still a lot of difficulties, and they're, they're not all legal again. It, it's, um, you know, so I, I guess just any of you three, like what, what do you see as the current difficulties towards studying the quote-unquote most dangerous drugs? So Rick, I'll start, you, start with you. Yeah, um, well, for us, the, the most, um, uh, well, we, we've had to choose um, sympathetic patients. Again, this is the political science aspect of it. And so MDMA is the most gentle of all the psychedelics. It's the easiest to integrate. And also we believe that the um, therapists who are going to give this to people will be more effective if they've done it themselves. I mean, you don't go to a meditation teacher that doesn't meditate or you know, a yoga teacher that doesn't do yoga. Um, and we felt that there's a lot less resistance to um, psychiatrists and therapists having their own MDMA experience than if they were to do psilocybin or LSD or ayahuasca. So. Um, so we, we have um, the support of the medical community in a way, and then also with PTSD. So it's, it's the veterans and it's um, you know, women survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence and things like that. So we, we have been able to persuade FDA not only to let this study go forward, but um, to let other studies go forward. We, we just had... Um, completed our second phase three study, which was tremendously successful. So we anticipate the possibility of FDA approval around June of 2024. And so I think that there's a, a lot fewer barriers than there have been in the past. Um, the main one, I would say, is money for us, is what, and, and it's what is your goal. If you're wanting to make money for shareholders uh, for private profit, it has been in the past, well, we've raised, um, $145 million in donations, and in the last um, couple of years, the for-profits have raised over $2.5 billion. So if you want to do this work for the public benefit, the biggest issue is not a regulatory issue anymore. It's, it's money. We have our own sources of MDMA. Um, and I think the, the question for the FDA now, and, and this is, I'd say, the biggest regulatory thing, and then we'll pass on, is that FDA doesn't regulate psychotherapy. They don't understand psychotherapy, and this is not primarily a drug treatment. It's a therapy treatment that the drug makes more effective. So we're having to argue with the FDA about under what conditions can this be given, what are the credentials for the therapists. And I'd say, for me right now, one of the most difficult questions is how do we get legal permission to give MDMA to therapists at low cost so that we can have the best trained therapists administering this to the patients going forward. Because once this is approved, society will generate its initial impressions. And if we don't have the properly trained therapists, um, you know, MDMA can make people worse. And we have a lot of stories of people that take MDMA under, uh, in recreational settings, emotions come up that they can't handle, they check themselves into the emergency room or they, you know, might attempt suicide. So the drugs don't themselves make people better. That it's the context and the supportive context. So how I'd say our biggest challenge, in addition to funding, is 
how do we create situations for um, therapists to get their own experiences so they can be the best trained? I'd like to, sorry, I'd like to piggyback off of that. Um, and there's a quote that I like. It's, the experience is necessary to add emotional understanding to intellectual belief. And there's something with physicians, and I joke, I was like, maybe I was meant to be an investigative journalist and the only way to get the scoop on a doctor's ego was to become one. And we are told we're nothing for all of our training. We're told to stay in line. And then when we graduate, we are knowers of all things. And we go into the world thinking we have to know the answers. We have to help everyone. And when we can't help them, there's all of this shame, this guilt, and this ego is our defense mechanism. And with some people will say, oh, I told my, like my doctor about psychedelics, and they dismissed it. Well, of course they did, because this isn't interesting new information. This is an assault to their sense of self. And so the data that you've been you know, pushing forward has been very beneficial to start that conversation with people, but it's still gonna require them to really experience it and to understand it. And even with ketamine, you know, some people who've worked with ketamine, they're all about, oh, the medicine does it. We've seen these great results, they get better. But it takes time to realize, wait, actually they were better, but when we added all of this therapy, they, were cons they stayed better and like really trying to um, get the providers to vouch for this because if you have enough of the people that are gonna be delivering this, asking for this, then you're gonna move things forward. That's a great statement. Yeah. Do you wanna close, close this out? Yeah. Um, I would just, I, I wanna um, echo Rick's comments about the, the need for funding is so crucial and the amount of federal dollars that go to all kind of absurd line items and the fact that we're not investing billions of dollars into this research is um, just unconscionable that, that we're, you know, our government should be investing this kind of, the, the huge level of money into, you know, moving this forward. So um, that's, that's still the, you know, we've managed to dismantle a lot of the barriers to research over the last decade, but funding, these studies are so expensive. Rick just mentioned the $13 million grant for this cannabis trial. Um, that, you don't find government money like that. That's a one-time thing. We'll never see that again. So um, really important that we all keep pushing our government to spend that money on that. Also, I would look at opioid settlement funds around the country. Those monies um, we have in just in Arizona, my home state, we have $540 million sitting there needing to be allocated. And I would argue that psychedelics hold the most promise for dealing with opioid dependence and they need to be studied. So let's get our attorney general's offices to look at creating task forces to make sure that money is spent the right way. Um, the final thing I want to say is any of you guys that want to pursue licenses, I'm happy to talk with you. I want to just uh, make sure you're aware. Be ready to deal with a full assault of police culture. I was so shocked. I just went through our um, annual m manufacturing audits this year, and I was... Uh, just, I felt like I'd been sodomized for three weeks. It was brutal. And um, they nitpicked everything, even our spores, you know, from our different psilocybin mushroom strains. They were attacking the fact that we did not weigh and, you know, count all the spores and weigh them. I mean, if all of you who know what spores are, you know, they're microscopic, you can't weigh them. But they were, and so we got violations for that, deficiencies on our license because of this absurdity. So the government is struggling to understand how to manage 
um, manufacturing for whole natural materials. But if any of you have the you know compulsion to do this work, I'm happy to you know guide you and um, help you because we want to see as many people push the DEA to issue more of these licenses. We think that um, you know the the idea of um, you know the for instance having. Um, natural mushroom manufacturers everywhere is going to be um, super valuable to ending the drug war eventually. So we want the DEA, I'll just say that there's a huge disconnect between the federal DEA off, the na their national headquarters is super supportive. I mean, we have a great rapport with them, but it's the local field offices that get into police culture hardcore and they really try to make things uncomfortable not when we were researchers uh, research licenses were you know I thought handled appropriately but they really are terrified that some of this is going to get diverted um, and that is uh, you know it, it's just something you you definitely have to be prepared to contend with when Matt sued the government he uncovered secret memos that showed that the DEA was actually trying to greenlight these licenses. It was the Attorney General's office, the DOJ, that were blocking DEA. So that's why I feel like the National Office of DEA has a great r relationship with us because they feel like we vindicated them. But the local people um, seem to be very aggressive, so you just have to be um, prepared for that dynamic. And um, and so we're we're super excited that you guys took the time to attend today. I wonder, do you guys think we could show that video real quick? We're going yeah. into a lunch hour, so they told us that if you guys want to stick around for a Q and A, we can hang out. But Sue, I don't want to still last oh, yeah, for a few and this is going to take like 20 seconds, oh, but, yeah, but for me, that, that first point, public funding, especially federal government funding, is really huge. And what I'll just leave you with is like, I know a lot of people are concerned about IP and patents and whatnot. That would be a lot less of a concern if we were like publicly funding a lot of the research. So just something to take away. That's a good point. Yeah, so I don't know if you guys can play the video. Um, no, it's on the thumb drive. Yeah, so, and I'll just tell you as he's pulling that up, um, I don't know, can, we can't dim the lights here, can we? No, probably not. I don't know if there's a way to do, okay. But, um, yeah, if you guys can, I, I just wanted to show you a clip of, so this um, video was generated by, um, uh, it came out of our work with the, um, with the different DEA licensure. My, my own mom, who was a physician, we were in uh, practice together for 20 years. So she decided, she was watching the studies from MAPS and you know groups that were publishing all this really compelling data. She was super anti-drugs her whole life, like, you know, trained in a very conservative environment. Oh, good, there you go. Yeah, I'll let the video speak for itself here. Let's see what you think. So we're just uh, trying to use this film. It's it's still um, it's about halfway funded right now. So we're gonna raise the rest of the money and attempt to kind of use this as a tool to talk about the potential for psychedelic hospices and the way that um, folks at end of life should be allowed access. They shouldn't have to wait for FDA approval in order to get um, to use these. But my mom, in the film, you'll see my mom was microdosing LSD and psilocybin mushrooms, and she had a very severe end-stage dementia. 
and the, the, these medicines seem to help take the edge off, the, especially the sundowning and things like that, that she didn't really have to contend with that because the psychedelics really mitigated it. So I just uh, bring this up because I think this is a perfect example of the way there's so much public support for people having access to these materials at the end of life. And I just want to you know, show people that, uh, like, I don't think many people will film their use of this material. Obviously, this is basically I'm depicting uh, a violation of federal law, right? I mean, this is uh, basically a violation of the Controlled Substance Act here. But, um, but I want to put that out there so people can see that these drugs have great potential to help people at the end of life and be able to um, maybe take care of their loved ones at home and manage them more. Uh, yeah. What do you mean by sundowning? I, I didn't oh, know. Oh, yeah, sundowning. With the advanced dementia, you see that those episodes that happen like clockwork every night where patients will get this agitation. They call it psychotic agitation where the dementia patients get super paranoid and they start feeling it. And so usually we treat that with um, antipsychotics and mood stabilizer and all these things, and we just pummel them with tons of pharmaceuticals. But what's interesting is psychedelics seem to offer a lot of um, hope for mitigating that. So, so anyway, yeah, if any of you guys are interested, this hopefully we'll be working on this film. We got, you know, my mom actually put um, instructions in her living will and power of attorney to um, ask for psychedelics because after reading the results of the MAPS trial, she was like so persuaded that this material should be available to people. So she asked to be to have this administered to her, and I thought it was really great that my mom was, you know, even at the end of life, she was so progressive and wanted. So we're using her um, story, even though she's passed now, we're using it as a tool to help bring awareness to the public about this. So anyway, thank you guys so much for attending. Appreciate everybody. <laughs>